Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, for blessing us with a moment in time to worship You through the study of Your Word, for making us new creatures at salvation, and for adopting us as Your own children, forever members of Your heavenly family. Father, we thank You also for each other, that You've given us the grace to encourage one another in this faith, most of all for Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain ever aware of those in need in this world, especially those in need of a Savior. We pray also for those of this congregation who cannot be with us this morning, that they stand firm in the faith and that they keep pressing on revealing their own brand of personal faith to others who may be encouraged by it. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title, obviously a continuation, part five of the Difficult passages, the difficult passages, of course, are those passages that the Spirit has deemed uh, necessary for review after a year on the gospel, salvation and sanctification. Um, Grace and works is, again, one of the pivotal aspects of uh, the outworking, if you would, of those fantastic lessons over this past year, and uh, we are on part five. I can say this uh, wholeheartedly, if you didn't catch Thursday's message, you need to, A-S-A-P. You just need to. Uh, Think about what I shared before class uh, in the way that the kingdom of darkness drags people away, and I shouldn't say drag because a lot of people are like frolicking hand in hand with the kingdom of darkness. If you didn't catch Thursday's message, you need to ASAP. I was thinking about it. Given the pace and the abundance of critical content in each and every one of these lessons, I find it impossible to believe that a person could, you know, get get what the Spirit's been saying to this church without hearing every message at least once. We're not even talking about just hearing it once, I mean, I'm not even sure that uh, most of them aren't do-overs in some way, shape, or form. At least some kind of an earnest review. I mean, these things are massive, and it takes hours to put them into a lesson, and so it's going to take you hours to decompress them out of a lesson. And you can't decompress them when you're watching the Patriots or when you're hungover, or when you're doing some other ridiculous thing. So just reflecting a little bit and sharing. I'm the pastor. Think about this. Just think about this. I'm the pastor, steeped in this curriculum. And even I go back and listen to my own lessons as necessary as well as every Tuesday night lesson that Scott teaches. You might be saying, oh, well, 
that's because you're the pastor. And, you know, you write it off like somehow I have all this extra time on my hands. <laughs> Just so you know, I begin listening to most messages between 5 and 6 a.m. in the morning. And if Tammy was here, she could affirm that. 5 to 6 in the morning. That's when I start listening to these messages. And I'm not one of these people that go to bed at 8 o'clock at night. Say, oh, well, your whole, you know, everybody's got an excuse. Well, your whole schedule shifted. That's why. No. No. I tend to go to bed after everyone in my house is already sound asleep. So I don't have all this extra time that you don't. So stop looking for excuses as to why I can somehow manage to listen to the lessons as the pastor. And you can't. And let me tell you, it's kind of, it's, it gets over, you get over it pretty quick, but it's kind of weird to watch yourself. You know, teaching yourself. But the Spirit is so beautiful that He allows it to happen. And then I have an out-of-body experience and I just listen to what the Spirit was saying through the vessel. And it happens. So you have to think about those things, my friends. You're supposed to imitate my faith, right? If I can actually do that, and I'm the guy ordained to maintain the curriculum, and all the lessons go, you know, cram through me, then you certainly don't have any excuses not to, at least as necessary. It's about humility and dedication to our Lord. It's that simple. This is the examination I've taught my boys over the years. If there were a million dollars given to you every time you watched a lesson, is it fair to say you'd watch everyone? So it's just a matter of priorities, isn't it? If, if you agree to that statement, then isn't it just a matter of priorities? Don't say it's about time or this kind of a thing. It's a matter of priorities. Because if there was a million dollars tied to every lesson, you'd do it. Some of you would be as simple as an ice cream sundae. Or, how about 30 more minutes with my precious child? Uh-oh, there's a nerve. Or 30 more minutes with my precious love. Whatever that may be in your life, whatever that wherever your heart is. Remember, that's where your treasure is. By the grace of God, you have an abundance of guidance coming from this pulpit on the most important subject in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, with that said, as we began on Thursday evening, the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, grace. What about grace? Well, I can tell you a couple of things up front about grace. Here's a lie. Grace accommodates man. That's a lie. But today's perversion of the gospel, you would think that that's what grace was. That God's just so gracious and loving, He'll accommodate you, you know, to make you happy. So you can stay in your ridiculous little fleshly lives, and He'll accommodate you as if to drag down the perspective from heaven itself 
to meet man on his grounds rather than to lift up our perspective to heaven and meet God on his grounds. After all, he is the sovereign, right? Who do we think we are? So the lie is that grace accommodates man. Truth is that grace accommodates God. Man needs to be reconciled to the perfect, holy God. God does not need to be reconciled to man. God's not the one with the problem. God's not the one that's separate from himself. Man is. Reconciliation means when God goes towards, or excuse me, when man goes towards God, man is reconciled to God from unrighteousness to righteousness. Righteousness doesn't come down to unrighteousness. Thursday's lesson was about jolting us all with a proper perspective. Specifically, should we be putting God on trial and demanding that He court us like some lovesick puppy dog? Should we be putting God on trial and demanding that He quote, court us like some lovesick puppy dog, you know, like the sovereign? Or should we realize that God has put His creatures on trial as the sovereign in the universe? Grace. Man needs to be reconciled to the perfect, holy God. God does not need to be reconciled to man. Yet, Today's so-called grace gospel supposes that God is on his knees begging man to let him save them. Truth, man ought to be on his knees with a contrite heart begging God to save him. What have we done to the gospel? What has contemporary Christianity come to A little emasculated Jesus who's on his knees begging to save a bunch of wretches. I don't see that in Scripture. I see a sovereign, holy God who said, I will, by grace, solve this problem for you through my Son. But you're going to come to me. And oh, by the way, I will draw you when I see what is necessary in you to give you even the means, the provisions to do that very thing. That's how it works. You're not going to put me on trial. I'm the perfect, sovereign, holy God. You're not going to put my son on trial. How dare you? Today's so-called grace gospel supposes that God is on his knees begging man to let him save them. Truth is that man ought to be on his knees with a contrite heart, begging God to save him. What did Jesus say? Go to John 15, 16. John 15, 16. Today's gospel is so warped. So grotesquely accommodating. But as we began with this morning, grace doesn't accommodate man. John 15, 16. Jesus said this. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Jesus knew the facts about who chose who in this equation. Think about the phrase long after today, my friends, up here on the board. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This statement from Jesus in John 15, 16, in accordance with his Father's election even of believers, stands as the antithesis to and the indictment of today's so-called, quote, grace gospel. God chooses who he wants in his family. Do you realize that? This is God's choice. Before any of us were even born, God elected, God chose us. God chooses who he wants in his family. We do not put God on trial and choose if he can be part of ours. Think of the perspective. Go to Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3. This is what's going on in today's Christianity is truly grotesque. Truly grotesque. And you can see the fingerprints of it all over our own society even. Whatever happened to authority orientation? Does it even exist anymore? Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us. Oh, yeah, that's right. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Who chooses who chooses? God chooses. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. We did a lot of work on predestination not that long ago. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glory, of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Do you see what verses 5 and 6 just say? It says, Grace does not accommodate man. Grace accommodates God. Who gets the glory for all this work done by grace? God does. That's part of predestination. He predestined to adopt us even, even before the foundation of the world. God chose us. We don't, quote, choose God. We don't put God on His knees. We don't put Jesus on His knees as a beggar. Did you see any of that in the four Gospels? No. Not at all. Jesus loved, but He never compromised and He never begged. He says, you've got to get this straight, my friends. You're, the ones, you're not in charge here. My Father's in charge. God is sovereign. Be grateful for His mercy that He sent me 
to die for your sins. And I'm not about to beg you. You need to turn your perspective around. So, depending on a person's perspective regarding salvation, they may, albeit subversively, propose that salvation is their choice. That salvation is their choice. Huh. But my friends, it isn't. Ain't that a kicker? God chooses. Before the foundation of the world, He chose every believer. God chooses whomever He chooses to save. And to those only, He graces them out with saving faith. You see, what the Spirit's teaching is perspective. And perspective is everything when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, the world doesn't like this perspective. Because if God's sovereign, which He is, and it's His desire to choose those who He chooses to save, then man is no longer in control. Up here on the board. Anti-grace. God is not our puppet. He did not give us the Bible so that we might try to make Him one, though some do. God is not an attorney like Satan. That's what Satan means, remember. God is not an attorney like Satan trying to argue His case. He is judge and jury. We may propose to choose Him all we want, but if He doesn't choose us, we aren't saved. That's a fact. He's not our puppet. God chooses. He did not give us the Bible so that we might try to make Him a puppet, although some do. God is not an attorney like Satan trying to, quote, argue His case he is judge and jury. We may propose to choose him all we want, but if he doesn't choose us, we aren't saved. Why isn't this the perspective of most so-called evangelists? Why isn't that the perspective that they present when they speak with unbelievers? I hope you see the point the Spirit's making here because it is an issue of perspective and theology proper. Hence my previous exhortation regarding making sure you catch Thursday evening's message up here on the board. This is grace. This is what it looks like. Talk about the salvation plan of God. God chooses to save men. Man does not choose to save himself. God elects man. Man does not elect God. Yet today's so-called, quote, grace gospel supposes that man decides who is saved. Says right here, all I have to do is believe in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Now I get to go to heaven, right? Give me my free ticket. Let's go. God says, I see your heart, and your heart is bad. 
Your heart is still dark. You don't want what I have. You're just hedging some bet. You don't want what I have. I, and by the way, I haven't chosen you yet. Maybe if you change your attitude, maybe if your heart changes, maybe if you uh, come to some realization about who and what you are without me, maybe then we can have a further conversation. But right now, don't you dare, don't you dare try to make a puppet out of me. Isn't that what today's gospel does? Isn't that what we suppose unbelievers do? Say this little prayer. Do this little dance. Convince the people to your left and your right. God sees the heart. And he chooses people on that. Stated more apologetically, using theological uh, logic, in other words, up here on the board, grace, if God is the one who grants repentance, belief, and faith that saves, how can man possibly choose to be saved? He cannot. If all these things are by grace, you either believe that you're saved by grace or you don't, which means any good mechanism involved in grace has to be from God. It has to be perfected. Right? If that's the case, how can man possibly choose to be saved? He cannot. It is by grace alone that God saves man. He is looking for a contrite heart. You say, well, what's left? I just said it. He's looking for a person's heart. This is the immensity and fullness of true grace. In other words, he takes every possible facet, every possible active aspect of salvation and says, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is my work. You cannot do it. I will give you these things. Where does that leave a person? A contrite heart. When God the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you're totally depraved, God is sovereign, what say you? No, I'm not. Arrogance. I totally am. I have a problem. I think I need a Savior. Good, that's what I was looking for. The perspective the Spirit's trying to give you is this up here on the board. Jesus' grace gospel. The true gospel places the onus on humility. False gospels often place the onus on man's ability to repent, believe, have saving faith. But these, as Scripture states, are gifts from God. Look at No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you understand the magnitude of John 6.44? I mean, really? Truth be told? Let me repeat something I stated earlier. God is never or has never been on trial. Not ever. 
He is the sovereign in the universe, the lawmaker, the judge, and the jury. And I was thinking an awful lot about this. It's hard not to when you're studying these things out and when the Spirit's revealing such things to you. What are Americans becoming really good at? Everyone here is an American, right? So I don't know, Monica's in question, but <laughs> ties to Mexican. But we're working it out. What are Americans becoming really good at? Especially in the last, let's say, 30 plus years or so. Americans are getting really good, good at putting authority on trial. That's what we're really good at. It's grotesque. Ask any kid. I can't even get the response. Now, look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not whining here. I'm just explaining to you the things that I see when I go outside of my cave. 20-somethings. It's almost impossible to get respect out of them anymore. Honest to goodness. You go to, I get a cell phone, you know, I try to get my cell phone updated, I get grief. Some little punk girl. I'm serious. You go get waited on at like any place, you know, even like a McDonald's or something, it's a put off. It's, there's no respect. I'm a 47 year old man with a good standing in my community. And oh, by the way, I'm also an ordained man of God. Um, some of the people that I deal with know all those facts and still talk to me as if I was this thing, as if I should be begging them for their time. Are you serious? This is what America has come to? Yeah. And we're all to blame. Because we're raising these idiots. No authority orientation. Boys, if, if, if America's good at something, that's what it's good at. Challenging authority. You might say, well, how does this relate? Well, where do you think something like that even begins, given the simple fact that Scripture states that all authority is granted by God Himself? Where do you think stuff like that begins? Up here on the board. That's what I call anti-grace. You see, that's just a symptom. Anti-authority is a symptom of anti-grace. So you need to fuse these two things in your souls. Anti-authority is actually anti-grace, you see. Anti-authority likes to put God on trial or any one of his delegates. It assumes the posture of judge and jury. Nowhere is this more fundamentally damaging than with the gospel. False gospels put man in charge. False gospels put God on trial. But God's not on trial, you see. Anti-authority is anti-grace. Anti-authority likes to put God on trial or any one of his delegates. It assumes the posture of judge and jury. Nowhere is this more fundamentally damaging than with the gospel. False gospels put man in charge. Conversely, as to our previous point up here on the board, the true gospel places the onus on humility. False gospels often place the onus on man's ability to repent, believe, have saving faith, but these, as Scripture says, are gifts from God. And no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
I gave you the Greek word helko on that word draw on Thursday. From Strong's means to drag, draw, pull, persuade, unsheath. In context, refers to God's design for salvation by grace. Even the initial, quote, coming to Jesus, John 6, 44, is a gracious provision from our sovereign God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. No one comes to Jesus unless who draws him? God. Do you understand? If that's a good work, do you believe that's a good work? To move towards Jesus? Then guess what it is? Grace. Even the movement towards Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is a grace gift. A person in the dark can't do that on their own. They're in the dark, you know, like an unbeliever. They're in total darkness. How do you see where you're going when you're in the dark? Unless there's a light to guide you. Well, where does that light come from? By grace from God. So to even go in the right direction towards Jesus Christ, guess what it is? The grace of God. So I hope you see this truly, for I believe, sadly, very sadly, many so-called Christians have been duped by their own arrogance and others. Up here on the board. Salvation is God's choice, not man's. God chooses to save those who He desires Man does not say to God, quote, something like this, I believe, therefore you must save me. God says, well, what do you believe? Is your heart convinced of this? God is not submissive to man's free will. God sees the heart of man and chooses to save the humble, for he loves a contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17, Isaiah 57, 15, 66, 2, Jeremiah 44, 10, John 14, 23, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, for starters. What the Spirit's saying is we have to have the right perspective about salvation. That God's not on trial. He's not begging us. He loves us. We know from Scripture He desires that all are saved and come to the knowledge of Him. We know that. But He's not, quote, begging us. He's not on trial. He's perfect. Why would the perfect God ever put Himself on trial? There's no call for it. Up here on the board, just to drive the point, of the previous point home, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And speaking of authority orientation in America specifically, I think of 1 Peter 5 up here on the board. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Again, the principle being amplified here is up here on the board. Salvation is God's choice, not man's. God chooses to save those who He desires. Man does not say to God, I believe, therefore you must save me. 
God is not submissive to man's free will. God sees the heart of man and chooses to save the humble, for he loves a contrite heart. You see, my friends, you have to think of grace this way. This is what true grace is. God chooses, God saves, God is able. It's not hard. It only becomes difficult when you say, but let me steal a little bit of that work. Because if I take it all, then it means that I've got a, this whole idea of being you know, saved from the dominion of sin to the dominion of righteousness. It means I have to, my, I'm going to lose my life. Didn't Jesus say something like that? You see, man doesn't like to lose his life. That's arrogance. So what he does, he tries to take parts of the whole gracious plan, salvation plan of God and hack out pieces of it so that he can keep bits of it on his own. He might say all the right things, do all the right things, uh, perform all the right so-called spiritual acts, but God sees the heart and says, you're not there yet because you're still trying to hold on. You want your cake and eat it too, in other words. You want the free ticket to heaven, but you don't want to, your heart isn't ready for a surrender to me. But that's true grace. That's what it looks like. I mean, God chooses based on his own sovereign will, chooses to save those whom he saves. So in the strictest sense, you don't even get to, you know, quote, you don't get to just, you know, quote scripture and then try to jam it down God's throat. It says, see, it says right here, blah, blah, blah. He says, are you kidding me? I know what it says. But your heart's not right. While humility accepts these most prominent facts about God's plan for salvation, Arrogance tries to hijack all or parts of it. And God is opposed to arrogance, remember? James 4, 6, up here on the board. So what are we talking about here? Remember the message title for five parts so far? We haven't even gotten really to works yet. Only alluded to it. We're getting there this morning, though. Is grace and works. Why would this be difficult at all? Why do some people struggle with even putting those two in the same sentence? It's because they've believed something perverted about grace. Some little G, some little grace from some other spirit regarding some other Jesus. Efficacious grace looks like this. God loves a contrite heart and so gives grace to the humble. Every component of salvation is completed by the efficacious grace of God. For lack of a better term, that leaves man in the, quote, starter state. I don't even know what to call it. It's a supernatural reality. I'm not going to draw it. I'm not going to try to explain it much more than that. I mean, where does that leave man then? It leaves him in a wretched state. And then along comes the gospel with the supernatural help of God, the Holy Spirit, and it's presented to a person in that state. And if God sees what he sees, then he does it all. 
So that leaves man in this, I don't know what to call it, starter state of humility or arrogance regarding sin and the need for a Savior. God's plan for salvation is all by grace alone. All of it is by grace alone. But remember what I started with. You do not forget this. Grace does not accommodate man. Do not equate grace equals accommodation. Because that's what most people will have you think. God's so loving and gracious, He'll just accommodate everybody. If they just say these words, He'll accommodate them. Because He wants them so bad and He loves them so much, He'll forget His own integrity. He'll compromise His own integrity, His own justice, His own righteousness. That's what most perverted Gospels propose. That's why you hear a lot of idiots on the street calling God a lovesick God or presenting Jesus as this emasculated, pathetic, scrawny little, and I mean scrawny in the figurative sense, not just the literal sense, a scrawny little beggar. Please take my hand in marriage. Because they don't understand efficacious grace. Because they're arrogant. They want some other kind of grace. They want another gospel, you see. Look, we're all born with a problem, right? And we can't help ourselves, right? We're stuck, we're born. Thanks, Adam. God saves a person from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but also the power, dominion, and ultimately the very presence of sin. We talked about this in our 117-part series that salvation isn't just this point, this historic point in time in everyone's life. Oh, I got saved on December 1st, uh, 1912. And then that was it. That's not God's salvation plan. We're in it. Do you understand? Salvation means deliverance at its very basic meaning. It means deliverance. So God, the idea is if we have this sin problem, we have to be saved, delivered from that. And it's not just some free ticket to heaven. It's really a, a, the problem in the universe. Romans 8.30, And these whom we predestined, he also called. And these whom we called, he also justified. And these whom we justified, he also glorified. All by grace. All by grace. On Thursday, the Spirit asked us to consider the Pharisees even with their rejection of efficacious grace. The Pharisees are a great example of people refusing to believe the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will press into a person regarding the sin issue. If a person responds humbly, the Spirit will impress upon their heart their need for the Savior. Contrarily, if a person responds arrogantly, they blaspheme the Spirit. They call him a liar. That's what we call theologically the blasphemy of the Spirit. Jesus Christ said, look, you can even call me a liar, but you cannot lie to the Spirit because this is the Spirit's special ministry in salvation. He's going to tell you the absolute truth about your condition and your need for a Savior. And God's justice is going to be gauged on that very thing. 
so that no one's with excuse. Matthew 12, 30 to 37, Hebrews 10, 29, up here on the board. Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Furthermore, God's grace functions perfectly across all three persons of the Godhead. Up here on the board, how about efficacious grace received? When God chooses to save someone, and again, parentheses, disclaimer, actually it's already completed from God's perspective, so I'm speaking as a man. Remember, he predestined, he elected all believers before they are even born. When God chooses to save one, someone, His Spirit baptizes them into union with His Son. He makes the believer a, quote, new creature, totally changed, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whose ministry expands tremendously for that person. Romans 8, 9-11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 2 Timothy 1, 14, up here on the board. God, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you, a.k.a. the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you think has been motivating you? If you're truly saved and you hear lessons like these, who do you think has been, you know, quote-unquote, on your shoulder? Who's been motivating you? Who's been convicting you to go out even, maybe in some way with regards to the Great Commission? I mean... Honestly, it's the most precious treasure we have, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Given all that we've seen thus far in Scripture and knowing how Satan loves to get we humans asking all the wrong questions, here's some food for thought on efficacious grace. Instead of asking the wrong question, will a believer produce fruit? Ask the right question, which is, why wouldn't they? Honest to goodness, why, why wouldn't they? Especially since Jesus Christ himself said they would. It's a, it's a good question. Well, I mean, instead of asking a stupid question, will they, will they produce fruit? How about asking the right question? Why wouldn't they? I mean, either you're changed completely, we're going to get to that, or you're not. If you're completely changed, all this new creature can do is produce what? Good or bad fruit? A good tree can only produce what? Good fruit. You see, the problem is with today's evangelist, Jesus' own words don't fit into today's perverted gospel. That's the problem. So they carve them out. They hack them out. Satan has been profoundly successful. Even in the last couple of hundred years, as we discussed, with something that started with a gentleman by the name of John Nelson Darby called dispensationalism. Nothing wrong with dispensationalism, but you've got to get that right, too. You can't hyper or ultra-dispensationalize things to the T, to the point where Jesus doesn't matter anymore where you don't actually consult the gospel of Jesus Christ, the man himself, his own words, because they've been sort of hacked out. 
Satan's really smart. Like, like really smart. The arrogant man who totes a perverted gospel wants to decide whether or not he allows God in his grace to produce good fruit. That's the arrogant man's perspective. He carries a perverted gospel and wants to decide whether or not he allows God's grace to produce good fruit. The arrogant man wants to be sovereign, you see. Sovereign. Let's take this one step further, practically speaking, before we get back to more theology proper. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Up here on the board. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15.22. Look, alive is not merely a judicial reality, not some mental understanding. Sure, you can understand what Scripture says, but the reality is much different. If God changes you, then He changes you. Do you understand? He doesn't just... Some people have gone so far with hacking into grace, that they say, He's only changed your mind. That He doesn't actually make you a new creature. This concept of a new creature is merely an academic one because He's changed your mind, and therefore you're a new creature that way because your mind has been changed. That's hogwash. You literally are a new creature. Not just the same creature with a changed mind. You are literally made new. A new creature, changed wholly. That's what Scripture says. Alive is not merely a judicial reality. It is a whole person reality. A person is, quote, made new. Scott brought this up on Tuesday. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life, John 5, 24. Passed out of death into life. You've been made alive in Christ. You were born spiritually dead. You're made alive. You've passed out of that thing to this thing. This isn't, a, this isn't some, um, you know, the gavel came down in some judicial change. You know, God in his you know, book up, up in heaven just writes it down. Okay, that one's good. There's some kind of a judicial thing. Is that a part of it? Absolutely. But my friends, that's, that's not the whole of it. Because God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace makes us new. Metabino passed out of Strong's Concordance to change my place, abode. To change where you live. You used to live in the domain of sin. Now you live in the domain of righteousness. Leave, depart, remove, pass over. In context, in John 5.24, refers to a complete change from the dominion of sin, where sin is Lord, and the, to the dominion of righteousness, where Christ is Lord. This speaks to God's saving work. You see what a different perspective that is than just having somebody say they believe and there's some kind of a mental picture of a gavel coming down in, in uh, you know, December 1st, uh, 1914. 
uh, whenever that was, and, and now that the gavels come down, uh, that's the change. That's salvation. Nothing else happens other than some so-called decision, but nothing's changed until you supposedly want it to change, you know, by your free will. That's not what Scripture says. He said, I have literally made you new. And that's not something we're going to deal with later. If I save you, says God, then I'm going to make you a new creature. So says Scripture. My gavel, in other words, doesn't just come down on the issue of justice. I'm also going to impart to you eternal life. Do you understand? Eternal life is not a judicial gavel call. Eternal life is eternal life. Do you see the difference? That's not some judicial forensic reality that we can point to at some point in time because remember, eternal life is infinite as it is. So concentrate. I know you've gotten a lot already. Here's the critical point in our studies where we must introduce the second word in our title, Grace and Works. So we've talked an awful lot about grace. Hopefully you've got that straightened out in your soul. If not, may I encourage you again to go back and listen to the series. It's only five parts long so far. Instead of doing a marathon of Twilight, why don't you do a marathon of Grace and Works? Or whatever you'll listen to, Buffy or... That's Anthony. That's Anthony's favorite. I'm peeling out of here after. <laughs> Look, we've got to get to the works now, okay? I'm hoping, praying, that you understand what God the Spirit has been saying from this pulpit on grace. I mean, it's everything. Do you understand? It's everything. And if He says He's going to change you, He changes you. If He says He's going to make you new, He's going to make you new. And any gospel that try to, tries to arrive at heaven some other way is wrong. You have to look at it that way. Because that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus stood up for. And He didn't apologize. He didn't accommodate. So you don't want me? Go away. So here's the critical point when we get to grace and works. I need you to really, I mean really concentrate here because I've got my surgeon's scalpel out. This is hard. Trust me. It's hard to do. I'm trying to cut away any false notions about grace in your souls. So please tune in wholly right now. I'll lead off by stating this up here on the board. On grace and works. It's impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. Impossible. Impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. A limited viewpoint means a limited perspective, which can only lead to confusion. This confusion is not from God. 1 Corinthians 14.33 Nor is any pain involved in extracting it the surgeon's fault. So don't blame me. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm trying to get you out of any confusion you might currently have 
to freedom. I'm tracing my own steps even in many ways. There's a reason why it's this guy before you. There's a reason why he uses certain individuals to teach certain congregations. It's because he allows us to use our own walks to relate to you, to say, you know what, I, I know what you're going through. I've been there and I've done it. I understand. But don't blame the vessel for any confusion. If you're confused about any of this, it's not because of me and it's not because of God. But the point is, it's impossible to understand works if your concept of grace is somehow limited. Here's one of the predominant features of today's perverted gospel, the one we might dub accommodating as opposed to demanding. Love it. Accommodating, demanding. Accommodating versus demanding. Sovereignty of man, sovereignty of God. God demands. He sees his own righteous good works. Impossible under the sovereignty of man, completely, absolutely possible under the sovereignty of God. Which means if we're talking about the perfect salvation plan of God, everything required to satisfy God, to do this good work, has to be from guess who? From God himself. Nothing less. So we might dub this perverted gospel as accommodating as opposed to demanding up here on the board. For example, if your version of grace leaves out something as fundamental as repentance, you are forced to assume it is a, quote, work of man if someone else assumes it to be part of the gospel. You might say, well, that's not part of my gospel, so it must be a work. I've heard this. I've been attacked on it. Really? Um, scripture says that God grants uh, repentance. Scripture says that repentance precedes saving faith that they're this way. And if they're this way, and if you think that saving faith is from God, and they're literally fused, what else must be from God? Repentance. Because that's part of the gracious act of saving someone. It's not a work from man. May it never be, because we can't produce anything good. So it has to be what? Not just perfect faith, but perfect what? Repentance. Do you understand? It has to be perfect repentance too. And for repentance to be perfect, guess who has to give it to us? God does. But you see, the arrogant man doesn't like that because repentance implies what? Turning away from the old self. Having to give up the old life. Man would much rather say, give me the ticket to heaven now. And we'll decide on that later, which I may never do, but I'll see you in heaven. 
You see, man loves that theology because it's accommodating. Because it's accommodating. But it's a complete hack on grace. So, for example, if your version of grace leaves out something as fundamental as repentance, in context, you're forced to assume it is a work of man if someone else assumes it to be a part of the gospel. This is to say that God's grace somehow doesn't cover repentance. But we're going to get to that in a moment. There's no doubt, trust me, there's no doubt that God grants repentance, that God gives repentance. There's no doubt. You know how I know that? Because Scripture says it. I've actually had people say to me that Repentance cannot be a part of the gospel because it is a human work. What? How could that be? How could that possibly be? I guess Jesus Christ, when he said repent, didn't know what he was talking about. Repent. Go go ahead and repent on your own, and then when you're ready, then I'll give you some saving faith after that. How can you possibly repent on your own? if it's got to be perfect. And why do we hyper-categorize everything? Why do we cut it all? Why, do we, why can't we just say repentance and faith are the same coin, you see? If you flip the coin, both things happen. Why can't we say that? Because that's what's depicted in the Bible. But then I can't manipulate God. I can't make God my little puppet. No, I know. But don't worry, God's already seeing your heart anyways, and right now you're still living in your sins. God's not mocked. Up here on the board. Grace and works. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what I said about last week, maybe. Do not mistaken these lessons as semantics. Do not say you say potato, I say potato. This is big. This is the deal. This is a big deal. It's not semantics. It's not about, you know, he's saying it this way, that guy's saying it that way. No, this is the real deal. If you get this wrong, you have a problem. If you get the grace of God, the efficacious grace of God, the ubiquity of it, wrong. If you shortchange God on his own grace, then the gospel that you cling to is going to be perverted. Because certain things are going to be left out. And you have to say, well, that's impossible because God has to do the perfect thing to save us. Yes, which means he has to give us everything to save us. Yes. But if you leave certain things out, what does that leave you with? Something imperfect. Something accommodating. That's today's gospel. It's accommodating. So anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different little g gospel. We know it exists from Scripture. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. This fought, And what did Paul say to the Corinthians? And you bear this beautifully. What are we doing? Are we bearing a false gospel beautifully? We say, oh, you say tomato, I say tomato. It's all good. Why don't we just go join the ecumenical movement? 
No, seriously, why don't we just do that? Jesus loves us. Well, you, you have Jesus, I have this guy, but we all go to God. Why don't we just do that thing like a bunch of morons? Seriously. Why don't we just compromise? Why don't we just accommodate man? Because isn't it, shouldn't we all just get along? Isn't it nicer just to, just to have sweet fellowship with other Christians? Isn't this just what this is all about? I don't think so. God is sovereign. He's not into little, our little tea parties. Here's the kicker of all kickers. The false gospel may proclaim grace. Grace! Grace! It's all grace! Because it's more accommodating. But it's actually a deceptive trap. You can use the words all you want. Can't you? Who's to keep a person from saying, hey, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian. But they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They just say they're a Christian. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, what was he? Some dude. No, for real. Right? Words mean nothing. Do you understand? If we haven't learned that with our little sidebar on word studies and phrases and stuff like that, words really, when it comes right down to it, if they don't represent your heart, they don't mean anything because God sees the heart. Do you understand? This is about what is going on in a person's heart. People can say grace all they want and mean accommodating. I know grace. God's grace accommodates me. What? Wait a minute, what? How's that work? He loves me. You know? But how does this work out in the gospel? He loves me. Yeah? He loves me. And that's as far as it goes. Yeah, we know. He loves you so much he sent his son who said, I'm not kidding around. My father in heaven has a real justice issue with you, has a real problem. You've been born in sin. And if you don't believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Is that serious enough for you? No, serious. Is that serious enough for you? When's the last time you evangelized someone like that? Nobody has the courage anymore. Because we don't want to anyone, and God forbid anybody actually respect their elders. A guy like me comes up to you, or any one of you goes up to someone, God forbid they actually respect you enough to listen to what you're saying. So if you come at them sort of like that, listen, you don't believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, all of him, that you're a sinner, you're depraved, you need him as a savior. You're going to die in your sins. Do you get it, my friend? You're going to die in your sins. Not just a free trip to hell, you're going to die in misery. Totally separate from God. Because that's how you were born. That's what a demanding gospel looks like versus an accommodating one. That one pushes people to their knees. Amen? Doesn't push God to his knees. The contemporary gospel... It's, too, it's so often touted as the, quote, grace gospel is actually an attack on God's grace. That's the funny thing. Grace gospel! Yeah, that's great, but it's actually an attack on God's grace. Through and through. 
So let's set the record straight up here on the board on grace and works. We're getting there. We're getting to works. Don't you worry. Gotta get, I'm telling you, it's easy. Once you, the, the point is, once you understand grace, works is easy. Works doesn't become difficult until you hack up grace. Because now you're confused. Well, if I left some out, then when the Bible says this, what is that, where does that leave this verse? Oh, man. But if you understand grace holy, then works is easy. Because everything fits now. Nothing's left out, hanging out. The only way, up here on the board, the only way man is ever able to produce any good works is by the grace of God. Amen? All right. When Jesus and his disciples said, repent, it was a call to God's grace. Do you understand that? Accept God's grace. You're depraved, you need a sinner. You can't do anything in this equation without God. So when Jesus said, repent, it was actually a call to God's grace. This is what you need to do. God will give you the ability if he sees a contrite heart. But this is what you need to do. You okay with that? Nope. Because that would mean losing myself. I just want the free ticket. Call to God's grace. Man's job has always been to accept this as God's will. When this happens, God grants it by grace. Do you understand how small we are? How pathetic we are? How little we are in this equation? Honestly, how immense God is? When he says, I'm holy, four letters in the English language, right? When I'm ho- he says, when I'm holy, what does that mean to you? Try to put yourself where you should be right now and think of the holy God of the universe. And then, then attempt to think about how arrogant it is to push him to his knees. How arrogant it is to hijack his grace in his saving plan for man. It's incredible, right? It's absolutely mind-blowing. And that's exactly what man does. Why is it so mind-blowing? Think about this. The anointed cherub, right? Where was he? He spent all his time with God. And then he swept away a third of the angels. How the heck does that happen? How are you with the holy God? He makes you second in charge. And you take one-third of his angels away? You deceive him? How could that possibly be? It sounds ridiculous, right? You with the perfect holy God and then you fall? How does that work? We know it does. Arrogance. How does it work with men? Why would man ever want to try to hack God's grace? Why would, ever, why would man ever try to muddy the gospel? Listen, if the anointed cherub can fall from grace, what do you think man can do? Don't you think he can hack up the gospel a little bit? Why would we be so appalled by the thought of that? He does it all the time. The only way man is ever able to produce any good works is by the grace of God. When Jesus and his disciples said, repent, it was a call to God's grace. Man's job has always been to accept this as God's will. When it happens, God grants it by grace. Don't believe me yet that repentance is part of grace? Go to Acts eleven eighteen. 
Acts 11.18. So repent is actually a call to grace. A lot of people don't think about it that way. It's actually a call away from the self. Turn away from that garbage, the old self, and turn towards the new. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Who grants repentance? God does. And what does it lead to? Life. Oh, you mean it's a gracious thing from God? Yeah. You know, I wrote a blog. Oh, you write blogs? Yeah. I wrote a blog for this past Saturday that spoke to different kinds of repentance. Godly versus fleshly. There is a thing. A lot of people repent because they got caught. Did you truly repent? Not because you got in deal with the penalty of sin, does your repentance actually include the sovereignty of sin, the dominion of sin, the, what you were born into? Because that's godly repentance. But how would I ever do that because I'm born in the dark? That's right, you were born in the dark. What's the only way out? The light. And who shines the light? You get to turn on a bick while you're in the dark? And somehow, by human work, find your way out, repent from that thing? No. God grants you repentance. He says, hey, I'm over here. You want out? Turn away from that. Go this direction. Who shines a light on the situation? Who? God does. I mean, is this, diff- is this rocket science? Of course not. If it's all by grace, then it's all by grace. But if you want to hack up grace and say, well, I'll leave repentance for later, well, good luck with that. And good luck not being confused with the rest of Scripture. God grants repentance. Therefore, it is not a work of man. It is a work of God. Go to 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. It's almost like man likes to have a little holdout on God. I'll take the free trip to heaven, but I'm going to hold out. Jury's out. Because you're on trial, God. Jury's out on this repentance thing. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. As I've taught you in the past, if you repented at salvation, truly received repentance, you repent for the rest of your life. It's a gift, and God's grace never fails. 2 Timothy 2.25 With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them what? Repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. How about 2 Peter 3.9? 2 Peter 3.9. So as I said in the point on the board, the, this hearkening, repent. It's a call to grace. I hope you see that. It's a call to grace. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. That's the will of God. Of course He wants you to repent. 
But he doesn't want you to hack it up and say, I'll take care of repentance, you take care of the trip to heaven. Maybe I'll leave it, maybe I won't. I don't know, we'll deal with it later, but give me the free ticket, will you? No. No. God says, listen, I'm the one who grants repentance. It's by grace, this whole saving thing. My call is to repentance, to eternal life. Turn away from that, turn towards my son, etc., etc. This is not rocket science, folks. It doesn't become difficult until we start hacking it up and making it a work of man. And then calling that grace. Can you believe it? Calling that somehow grace. Repentance doesn't just... Look, what are you repenting from? Sin. Okay, what do we know about sin? It's a dominion. Okay? Okay? Not just a judicial indictment, not just a, the cause for a penalty. Sin is sin, spiritual death, separation from God. So to repent from that, you're repenting from that, not just the penalty of it. You see the difference? Different story when a person says, I don't want to go to hell because of that, and I no longer want to live in that. Totally different story. The latter being God's grace provision, of course. True repentance. Again, up here on the board, the only way man is ever able to produce any good works is by the grace of God. When Jesus and his disciples said repent, it was a call to God's grace. Man's job has always been to accept this as God's will. When this happened, God grants it by grace. So in keeping with our message title this morning... Up here on the board, grace and works. And we're not going to get to the rest of the works, but that's okay because we're almost out of time. Good works are the result of being saved. Not, in other words, look, good works are the result of being saved. I actually probably should say even the act of being saved, not just afterwards. Not just the result, but every part of it. But we've already covered that. But where do works fit then, theologically? Good works, good fruit, are the result of being saved. Being saved is never the result of works. No part of it. Since it's impossible to be saved without repentance, repentance must be a grace gift from God, not a work of man. And this is absolutely true. We just saw it. So to preclude these grace gifts, do you understand what I'm getting at? To preclude the concept even of repentance from the gospel message is a hack on grace. Because it's a grace gift of God that precedes even saving faith. Two sides of the same coin. But, 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 no, stop. Scripture says it's by grace. The whole thing. And if it requires you to repent then you have to repent. And if you're born in darkness, you don't know how. But God grants repentance that leads to life. Do you get it? So to take that out of the equation, what have you done to God's grace? You've said, I'll take some of your grace, but not all of it. Let's leave some of it for later. I'll decide on that stuff later. And then they run, and people run with that theology, and they, they let the line out like a fisherman would. They let the line way out. 
And the further you go out from the truth, the more confusing people get, or people get on the subject. So for some of you, and I guess I'll have to close here. Some of you, your conception of grace is actually expanding, which is a really good thing. Maybe it was this, like this, now it's like this. Maybe you understood grace in the context of the gospel, like this, and now it's this way. That's what he's doing. He's saying we need to expand our perspectives on this whole thing so that we don't get stuck in some trap. Up here on the board, I'll give you this as the last. Grace and works. If your version of grace doesn't include all facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever. Who else is going to do that? For that man cannot see out of darkness. Only the light from God can illumine and quicken man's perspective by grace. And I use the word quicken, sort of a theological term. Don't ask me to draw it, in other words. Don't even ask me, honestly, don't even, don't do this to yourself either. Don't try to serialize everything. Well, stish. And then it's this, and it's this, and it's this, and it's this. Now, look, folks, this is supernatural phenomenon. What else can I say except what the what Scripture says? If he says he gives a person repentance, if he says he gives a person faith that saves, if he says all these things, if he says everything in the salvation plan of God is by grace, then guess what? It's by grace. What else do you want me to say? What else does Scripture say? It says we're all born in darkness, right? We're all born spiritually dead. It also says that a spiritually dead person can't appraise spiritually praised things because they don't have that ability. So there you are, stuck in darkness, going, where am I? What? what?" And the flesh is like, I love it down here. It's great. We have our own little uh, lordship. We have our own little life. We can live in sin. We like to sin because we're arrogant, you know. And and, And the flesh abides in that thing. But how do you find your way out of darkness if it's dark? Without what? Light. I'm not going to draw a little thing, a big black circle with a little, you know, a little lighthouse shooting light in. Hey, follow the lighthouse. I'm not going to do that. That's silliness. How that works is supernatural. All I know is that it works. That's what I know. So that's what I'm ordained to teach. I just want to teach the truth because the truth will make you what? If your version of grace doesn't include all facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever, for that man cannot see out of darkness. Only the light from God can illumine or quicken man's perspective by grace. This is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. That's the best I can do for you. God says he does it. He does it. God says, I want everyone to be saved. Come to the knowledge of me. Guess what? That means his justice, his integrity says he'll do it for everyone. 
He'll make sure everyone has the ability to make that quote-unquote decision, to respond, maybe that's a better word, to respond to the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit, what that looks like. I'm shy to even use the wrong word. Frankly, that, that's why I say the starter condition, right? The starter state. That's what God looks at. I look at the heart, he says. If I present this to you, what say you? Mm-hmm. Let me put you on trial. Why don't you come down here? Hey, come on down. Come on down. Let me put you on trial. Let me see if this is all worth it. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take definitely take the trip out of hell. That's a good one. Let me put that one back. No, 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 no. Like the rich man, right? What must I do to have eternal life? What was he after? He wanted a goodie bag. Right? Because Jesus right there said, hey, you have a problem with your, your little richie situation with all your money and your belongings? Sell all that and then come back and talk to me. No way. I got a lot of money. I guess see you later. And then what do he say about salvation? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to him. Because they don't surrender. They want the goodie bag. Don't do that. Don't do that. Light shines out of darkness, my friends. God's grace is so magnificent, so... I'm just going to stop there. I don't know what else to say. Except amen. amen. All right, let's watch a video about the sovereignty of God. Thanks. Yeah. 
Let's just bow in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for so many blessings that we cannot even begin to count them, for making them visible to us in time, as your word states, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Thank you, Father, for saving us and for your Spirit who has baptized us into union with the light. We pray that we truly are lights to the world, for this world is truly shrouded in darkness. It is so very lost. We pray that our evangelistic efforts do not go unnoticed and that some may be saved before it's too late. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.